0: Did I tell you about when I taught in school in Istanbul? No. Oh, right. So many moons ago, I was on a British council project to uh, bring Turkish language teaching to British schools in areas with Turkish-speaking children. And so a group of teachers from Enfield, we went to Istanbul and we worked at school there. And the highlight of the experience was being in an English class. (laughs) with a load of 11 year olds and the teacher was like good news there's a real life English person here <laughs> for you and I was like yeah hi I'm English and she said Finally, you get to play a real English person at Scrabble. And I was just like, oh, no, because I'm dyslexic. I'm really, really bad at Scrabble. So essentially, I had this game of Scrabble with these 11-year-old boys who completely thrashed me, (laughs) (laughs) even though they'd only been learning English for like three years. It was so embarrassing. I was playing all like the three-letter words. (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Book Smart Podcast. I'm Laura Kersop, and I'm here with Chris Fellingham. Hello. What are we going to be talking about today, Chris?
1: So, today we're going to talk about whether online courses and MOOCs in particular are useful for international development. We're going to look at who uses MOOCs, uh, we're going to look at how they use them, what benefits they bring, uh, and then at the end, we've got an interview as per usual.
0: And this theme was inspired by your recent trip to Sudan, is that right?
1: That's correct. Usually when I tell people in London that I work for a moot platform, I'm met with blank stares. Um, But in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, uh, moot platforms are famous.
0: Wow, that's really cool. Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's a sign of just how uh, popular moots are becoming. Uh, it kind of also makes sense. Sudan has actually quite a good uh, university education system, but it's also quite limited. So the students have to pick from a relatively small number of subjects, but the universities are still good at training them. So they obviously seek free ways to get more education and build on it. And MOOCs are a really great way to do that.
0: Brilliant. Did they tell you about what courses they've been taking at all?
1: They did. I mean... Uh, English language courses are extremely popular, Um, but surprisingly, so are Mandarin courses. Ah. There's a lot of investment in Sudan um, by Chinese companies, so a lot of them actually learn Mandarin to quite a high level. Often, Mandarin's preferred to English.
0: Whoa, we're all going to be out of a job soon. When we say international development, what do we actually mean by that?
1: I think we mean the economic development of the poorer countries in the world.
0: Okay, cool. So it's about them developing themselves to improve the economy in their country? That's right. Okay, cool. Uh, so are MOOCs good for that? And who takes them?
1: That's a good question. Um, probably at the start, you'd have to say they weren't particularly good at that. When MOOCs started, they pretty much started with computer science courses. And computer scientists have a bit of a, a bias, have been towards sort of... Um, you know, middle-class men, and those were the (laughs) primary users. In fact, University of Pennsylvania, who were on Coursera, when they did one of their first studies, they found that that was the predominant demographic, college-educated, middle-class men in particularly the U.S.,
0: Ooh, uh, so how's that changed then?
1: Well fortunately it's widened significantly since then That's partly just because MOOCs have got more famous Because there's more MOOCs And because there's MOOC platforms in uh, in different languages To make it more available and widespread um, One of the most recent uh, surveys uh has been by Coursera again, but with the University of Pennsylvania in a much larger sample. And what they found is that now, while the US and the UK are doing some of the biggest countries, countries like India and China and Brazil have huge knowledge hungry student populations who are taking their courses. In fact, uh, according to Class Central, uh, in 2016, 58 million people globally took MOOCs. And it's not just men now. On some platforms like FutureLearn, 60% of the user base is female.
0: So that's cool. So you'd say at present they've broadened and expanded and they've helped educate people in developing countries, helped them educate themselves.
1: Yes, but we have to have a caveat. Essentially, it was kind of an orthogonal movement. They, it was the educated people in these countries taking them as well. It wasn't right. the poorest of the poor. It was the people that had gone to university in a poor country and were seeking to build on their own opportunities.
0: Got it. Got it. So why are these people taking MOOCs? Uh,
1: that's a very good question. Probably the most authoritative account came from a survey conducted by uh, Coursera and University of Pennsylvania in 2015. Uh, the academics sent our surveys to 780,000 users from 212 countries and essentially asked them what their motivations were what they found was that essentially people fell into two groups. About uh, The biggest single group were called career builders, and these were people that were taking MOOCs to either get a job or get ahead in their existing job. And then about a third of the users were what they called education seekers, and these were people that were just primarily motivated by curiosity.
0: And who was in which category? Was it that people that were career builders were largely in one part of the world and education seekers were in another? How did, it sh- how did it
1: shake out? That's right. They looked at the group in sort of two rich and poor categories. They used OECD, which is basically a, a group of rich countries, as a proxy. And they used non-OECD countries to see what people from poorer countries were doing. What they found is that the people from the non-OECD countries were the ones that reported the most career benefits. So well, not only was that their motivation, but they found that the MOOCs actually helped them get on the most in their career.
0: Oh, Cool. So if, like you say, the educated people in non-OECD countries are taking MOOCs, how is that helping, really? Is it just the educated getting more educated?
1: Yes and no. It's definitely the case that MOOCs aren't exactly targeting the most needy people in the world. But on the other hand, uh, they're helping these countries' workforces skill up. The fact that they report career benefits, the fact that they report that they feel able to do their job better does mean that the workforce is able to improve faster than it might otherwise do without the MOOCs. And so in a way, they are helping these countries' economies grow by improving the education. And hopefully these people will contribute to the development of the the country.
0: So people taking these online courses is all well and good, but it's not as good as taking a proper course at a university, is it? Like you don't get the same credit and the same kudos and same qualifications.
1: That's a tough question to answer. Um, And it gets to the heart of what you really have to prove if you take a MOOC. Have Have you learnt it to the same degree as someone on campus? And even if you have, who will believe you? in some ways there are kind of positives to this uh people who already have been to universities um, that are credible are perceived to be believable when they say that they've done additional learning because it seems obvious that if they could do the university degree then they might have learned the MOOC as well and an employer can believe them conversely people in developing markets the the certificate system is weaker less people go to university there are less professional qualifications So even having an informal qualification, like, say, a proof of completion from a MOOC platform, actually, there's been some studies to show it's still quite beneficial, particularly if they can demonstrate in the interview what they've actually learnt. It could be enough to get them into a job interview and potentially if they can prove it into the job as well.
0: Do you have any examples of when employers have actually used certificates from online courses or MOOC courses?
1: Yes, and in fact, India seems to be one of the biggest proponents of this system. Uh, Many of the big Indian corporates have been taking on MOOCs for their own internal training, like Wipro and Infosys. And because they've taken them on and used them for their own training, they also recognise people that come to them having done MOOCs. So in this sense, it's quite good that they're recognising the informal qualification.
0: This makes me think of badging and the Open Badges movement. Back in 2012, I was involved in the work Mozilla did around the Open Badges infrastructure, and there was great hope at the time that badging would become an internationally recognised way of proving informal learning.
1: Did badging take off?
0: I think there's still lots of people that are believing in it, and some organisations have adopted it, but uh, there's still some way for it to go. Perhaps we should explore this in another episode.
1: I think so too. In the final part of this podcast, we interviewed Scott Anderson, who co-authored a report On the impact of MOOCs in international development, here's the interview.
2: I was the former director of the Advancing MOOCs for Development Initiative. I've spent the last um, 15 years of my life involved in education uh, for technology and education initiatives, uh, and in democracy and governance issues. Issues, uh, primarily at nonprofit institutions. Uh, working to sort of spread democratic open ideas and open educational platforms and ways of learning. Um, so what we wanted to do is a, a two-fold uh, look into, A, who is using MOOCs? Are they useful? Um, can they be applied throughout education systems at, at, in parts of the developing world? And specifically, we looked at Columbia South Africa, and the Philippines, Um, each for its own different reasons, were these countries selected. Uh, Colombia, sort of because it's uh, one of the higher standard of living countries within Latin America, but at the same time it has a a great uh, rural divide, rural-urban divide. The Philippines, strictly because um, English allowed us to evaluate content much more, and MOOCs are slightly more familiar there in a way that probably might surprise your listeners today. Uh, and South Africa, obviously, because they've had almost you know twenty years plus experience, if not thirty years plus experience, in doing distance education. So um, a, a look at those are the three systems we were going to look at, and then sort of extrapolate the data we had there. And the second part of the program would be a promotional campaign, um, making policy away- makers aware of MOOCs and their potential. Uh, And and finding ways to develop partnerships between educational institutions and government institutions, so certification of select topics that would be given or or MOOCs that were taken uh, would have some validity within those countries.
1: Brilliant. And if you could, Scott, could you summarize the main findings from the report?
2: Well, okay, so the findings from the report itself is actually that a lot of people are using MOOCs within the developing world, but they're using them in a different way than you might think. I mean, this is the number one kind of key takeaway from the report. Uh, They're not, the the standard academic MOOCs that are offered by large-scale institutions, you know, the edXs um, of of the world or or things like that, uh, are, are popular with the kind of core elite that you would imagine that, but increasingly technical and vocational education are being offered by government agencies where one can take their courses from home and get certified in specific skills. There's an organization called TESDA, which is a part of the government of the Philippines, which tests and trains for a whole host of just uh, standard vocational professions like restaurant management to And these, these courses are all recognized and certified so it's, it's literally like a way of taking a class and saying you have the, the right to get a waiter, to be a waiter, and that you need to be certified and specialized um, before you can even hold that, partic- that, that job.
1: If we could zoom in on that accreditation issue, is the... Um is the certificate that MOOCs typically provide sufficient, or were, particularly in the case of government agencies that were providing this, like TESDA, were they providing their own assessment and accreditation on top of the MOOC?
2: Yeah, so actually the MOOC is, that's, that's the thing, the MOOC is actually embedded into the certification process. So let me I'll explain how it, it sort of worked with, with TESDA for a number of things. Uh, let me just give you one specific example, so your, your listeners might be able to grasp this. Um, so TEST is a government organization in the Philippines that's responsible for educational uh, act, online educational ed tech kind of promotion. They partnered with the University of the Philippines, which then creates a course. And this specific course, and this is one that we sort of monitored, was designed entirely for call centers. So by the time the course was created, it was going to be certified um, as as sort of like the official course.
1: How big a problem was ICT access uh, for the participants and how big a, how big of a blocker do you think it is in general for using MOOCs, even mini MOOCs, uh, as a tool in international development?
2: I think it's increasingly less um, in those kind of middle tier countries. I mean, obviously, we're talking about uh, they, they were even there was even a, a talk at one point of USAID partnering with the government of, of Jordan. To test whether in these sort of larger uh, refugee camps that have become semi-permanent, if, if MOOCs would um, would work there for educational output. So it's you know as technology becomes uh, more widely distributed, especially phones, uh, the the Southeast Asian markets right now are flooded with cheap Chinese cell phones. Almost everyone can afford to have a cell phone. I mean, one of the things that, that you see that with you know outrage in certain circles that you know what hey, are these refugees having cell phones? Everyone has a cell phone. Everyone will soon have a smartphone. It's it's actually a, a necessary feature with which to live your life uh, at this time. And because of the technology involved in, in creating this mechanism, it also can serve as an educational tool.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing I guess is kind of interesting is you mentioned obviously that actually the that subject discrepancy between the mini MOOCs they were actually taking were more vocational-based, like um, business process outsourcing or, you know, working in a restaurant. Uh, What is the role then of, say, the more tertiary education-level MOOCs, if at all, in international development? And do you think that's going to change potentially as the economies develop and perhaps there's a a higher demand for the more kind of abstract uh, academic subjects?
2: Well, in general, I mean, what we found is is sort of the, the... The underlying rule, which is the assumption, that a high MOOCs are valued when offered by prestigious Western institutions, especially in the STEM fields, uh, because you know an elite wants to prove that they're capable of you know doing work at the highest levels uh, of scientific and academic research, and this is actually an ex- extremely helpful way to advance your career, um, and especially in, in in countries that just don't have. The the science and, and technology based education systems that, that exist um, in places like like the U S and the U K so that allows you to bridge that gap. Outside of that, um, a lot of the university systems locally now are creating their own forms of online learning. I still believe that online learning is it really sort of in it in its infancy. One of the things that that we saw um, in Colombia that they're experimenting with is this is interesting. You said. Rather than sitting there and watching uh, a screen or reading, a lot of like basic learning techniques were being conducted. They were doing an experiment with with actual actors, so turning like a MOOC into a soap opera, and you learn that way. And I could actually see that as becoming something that would be extremely popular. The only difference that we noted uh, in the developing world, so the, the trends we see, is that there are a lot more women involved. Uh, the, the gender. Kind of switches over in some of the countries the MOOC users, uh, and that we found in the survey. I think, in particular, in Colombia, a majority were female. So uh, that that has definitely changed. Um, the first the, the first crossover when MOOCs first began, it was literally like, um, you know, a ninety percent uh, white, upper educated, uh, someone who already possessed at least one degree uh, was using them. And and this is cr- gradually democratizing. Romania and Ukraine became the first two countries that had a majority of MOOC users that were female. And, um, and increasingly, we're, we're finding that, that democratization trend with MOOCs.
1: Moving on then, though, I guess, to some of the, uh, the sentiment analysis uh, when you, you interviewed the users afterwards. Were there any differences um, by gender in terms of how they felt the MOOCs were useful to them?
2: Yeah, actually, a lot of women did find them more useful as a general rule um especially i believe in columbia i don't know if you saw the secondary uh, follow-up study that we did well we offered so one of the things we want to do is like find out how would you increase MOOC usage and so we did a, a, a mini study and i'll be happy to send it to you where we took um around you know we, we advertised in libraries that if you took a MOOC and completed it we would pay for your certification for the first, I can't remember what the number is off the top of my head, the first 50 people who signed up. And um, so the incentive was obviously we would pay for certification. Because one of the things that, that we heard is that people don't complete MOOCs, not just because they don't have time, but the certification process is so expensive to the average person that they can't afford you know, the 50 or the $100 it takes, um, mm-hmm. often to have the course certified. So okay, so we decided to, to sort of play with that assumption, and they will do it. And so it gives us, it gives you an incentive to complete it. Um, the completion rates were higher by almost somewhere between thirty and forty percent um, of those moves as a result of offering that incentive. But women were overwhelmingly more likely to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it might have been as high as seventy-five like percent of the people who actually completed uh, and were certified were, were women.
1: In, uh, in the end of your report, you look at some of the recommendations you make for how um, MOOCs can be used and like better deployed, including coordination between government and employer bodies. Um, what sort of a year on and with the later report, what, what are your main recommendations for how MOOCs can sort of better aid international development?
2: Uh, well, one is the lo- I mean the n- number one that we found over and over, and this was the frustration when we talked to academic institutions, is that it would offer these courses but they could never get them sanctioned by the Ministry of Education because the Ministry of Education just had, didn't understand what it was they were trying to do. And even in those cases where we found people that were quite enlightened within the Ministry of Education, it was still a difficult process for them to... So one of the things that we learned, from the, the Philippines example is a great one, is that government institutions and academic institutions have to come together at the outset um, to say that this is what the goal is, to explain it, And then kind of create, even if the the professor ends up making very, very limited changes to their course, at least it's something more, and normally it's not even done at the level of the professor, it's done at the level of the institution. So the institution needs some kind of formal or written agreement uh, with the government that its content will be recognized by government agencies. Uh, And that's one of the things, you know, the the countries that have been able to do that, and Colombia was the most successful uh, of the models that we looked at. the incentive to take MOOCs as far higher.
1: Okay. Um, Thinking a bit more broadly now about sort of IREX's work with um, educational technology, where do you think MOOCs stand in terms of the impact they can have on international development um, compared with other educational technologies and initiatives you've looked at?
2: Well, again, and this gets back to the real definition of MOOCs. If we're talking about the classic definition of, of MOOCs in terms of it, sort of tertiary tertiary education and um, being, for an elite, its impact on, on international development is limited. But if you're talking about just like, you know, creating a series of videos on like basic health and sanitation in a local language that are then distributed and disseminated, then its impact on international education um, can be, can be I mean, on, on international development can be quite high. Um, it's, it's really about identifying what local needs are and addressing uh, short, slightly entertaining uh, methods of conveying that information that's necessary, that that meets the local need. And I think that's the the thing that international development, not only agencies but universities that engage in that behavior, uh, governments that want to reach people, those are the types of things they, they need to keep in mind as well as the, the less formality in some ways, and this doesn't always work because some cultures require formality, but in general, the less formality that, that exists, uh, the more likely it, it is to be to be used and, and listened to. But a lot of the lessons that are learned are, are not just applied to educational institutions. They definitely apply to international development institutions. Absolutely, yeah. The, the message, how you get the message out uh, to a wider audience whatever that message is you're, you're trying to target and it could be like refugee awareness it could be it, the, the means by which you create that message and disseminate it is so critical
0: and that's it for the fourth episode of Booksmart follow us on Twitter Booksmart UK we'll see you in April
1: bye, bye. That. You can't
0: say that. <laughs> <laughs>